Hello again, listeners, and welcome back to the Violence and Gender podcast. I'm Jennifer Kuhn, and as always, I'm joined today by the journal's editor-in-chief, Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole of the George Mason University. Dr. Anna Satterfield of Texas A&M is unable to join us today, but our guest for this episode is Caitlin T. Kirk Preventure, one of the authors of a review paper titled Neuroanatomical Differences Among Sexual Offenders, a Targeted Review with Limitations and Implications for Future Directions, published in the September 2020 issue of the journal. Welcome, everyone. Dr. O'Toole, feel free to take it away. Thank you, Jennifer. Kate, thanks for joining us. Can you start by telling us a little about your review paper and where the impetus to write this came from? Thank you for having me, first of all. The review paper that my co-authors and I wrote focuses on a summarization of the structural and functional brain imaging findings in the current literature that use sexual offender populations. And we highlight some of the limitations of these previous anatomical studies with this population. And then finally, we offer suggestions for future research in this area. The idea for this paper came about as I'm a doctoral candidate in clinical psychology. And during my physiological psychology class, we were to write a review paper in an area of our interest that aligns with physiological psychology. So I found this to be a good way to bring in my research focus, an area of interest, which is on sexual violence and factors associated with sexual offending. So this was a very good way to bridge that topic. After completing that class, I took my paper to my research mentor and co-author, Dr. Nakia Splain, and she agreed that this was a worthwhile paper, and we decided with the help of a colleague, Rebecca Nelson Aguilar, to turn the paper into the manuscript that we now have today. Thanks so much, Kate. What do you think some of the most interesting findings are that you came across in your article? One of the most interesting findings that we found in this review was that many of the studies found specific structural abnormalities in the brains of the sexual offenders compared to nonviolent or non-sexual offenders and specific functional kind of abnormalities as well. However, when you delve into the neuroscience literature a little more, similar abnormalities are found in various individuals and people diagnosed with various disorders, such as schizophrenia, substance use disorders, stuff like that, which highlights the importance of viewing these neuroimaging results when talking about trying to differentiate sexual offenders from other populations, why we need to really do this with caution. For example, some MRI research has shown that pedophilic offenders compared to non-sexual offenders had reduced gray matter in various regions of the brain. But again, these reduced gray matter abnormalities have been found in people with different psychiatric diagnoses. So it really highlights that some of these abnormalities are not specific to sexual offending. So we really want to be careful when we're talking about causality of sexual offending behavior and how we're differentiating sexual offenders from non-offenders when we're using this type of technique. Kate, I always like to identify the so what or the reason for why a piece of research or why a specific article matters. So how do you envision your article having practical implications downstream? I think that this paper is really important because sexual violence is a major concern worldwide and it's of public interest, particularly it seems when children are involved, when children are victimized. So I think a lot of why people are doing this type of research, really trying to find a way to predict who offenders might be or really differentiate again between sexual offenders and non-offenders. People really want to know like, what do I need to look for? How can I protect my family, myself, my children? And for over a century, it's been theorized that sexual offenders may have brains that are different from what we consider to be quote unquote normal. So it would be great in reality if we could scan someone's brain and be a hundred percent sure that this person is an offender or is not an offender, but it's just simply not that 
simple. We can't do that at this point. It's also something that we need to keep in mind of even if we can use brain imaging to differentiate, we really need to be careful because does it mean that every person that has this sort of abnormality that we're finding in these scans, are they going on to offend or will they offend or have they offended? And that can get very complicated and kind of dangerous if we're trying to predict things that may or may not happen. That does make sense. And I'll ask you a little bit more about some of the limitations of the imaging a little bit later in the podcast, but that was very helpful. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Kate. So as of right now, there just isn't a whole lot of research out there related to the neuroanatomical differences between the sexes as it relates to expressions of violence. Tell us why you chose in particular to focus on sexual offenders in your paper. So that's a really good point. There's definitely a gap in the literature regarding differences between the sexes and also differences in gender identity in the relation to expressions of violence. The reason I chose to focus on sexual offenders and other forms of violence in this paper is largely due to my area of research focus, which is sexual offenders and sexual violence. But also, since research on violence often focuses on males, we really wanted to highlight the fact that when we research and investigate sexual offenders, we're largely focusing on males and really do not seem to focus on female offenders at all, even though female offenders do offend against children and adults. So I think the sex disparity in the research is really highlighted in our findings and that all of the 15 studies that we reviewed in our paper had male samples only. We have to be really careful when interpreting results because any findings that we might find using these scans to differentiate sexual offenders from non-offenders likely won't generalize to female offenders because we don't have the data on that. We're not studying that. The paper also just highlights the need for replicating studies using female offenders as well. Kate, as you're probably aware, when we're talking about violent offenders and specifically with sex offenders, we're always looking for kind of the long-term application of research. Long-term goal being prevention and then ultimately can we predict who will be violent and who won't. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned and talked about the limitations and the applications of your research What would you say, if you were talking to a group of practitioners, how would you suggest that they use your findings, your research? I would suggest that practitioners use these findings to really think critically about the sort of evidence or the weight that they're applying to neuroimaging techniques when we're trying to differentiate sexual offenders, if we're using it to try to predict or even figure out, is this person a sex offender based on these abnormalities or not? We really need to be very critical when we're evaluating those findings because, as I mentioned before, these abnormalities are not unique to sexual offenders, but maybe finding these abnormalities is very useful in understanding other aspects of behavior and psychology of, is this abnormality in their brain leading to aggression? And is that aggression then being expressed through sexual violence? So maybe we can be more predictive of possible aggression issues versus being able to say that this person's going to be a sex offender. So I really hope that practitioners are really looking at the limitations of what these studies can tell us and what they can't tell us. Also, a lot of these studies have very small samples. Obviously, uh, neuroimaging studies are going to be very expensive, so I'm sure funding is a problem. Grant funding is something that definitely needs to be boosted in order to continue with these studies, but having very small sample sizes means that the results that you're finding may not actually generalize to a larger population or a larger sample. Yeah. 
yeah, makes replicability difficult. I think our readers will be very interested in hearing how they can use your article just in terms of a practitioner's work with the recognition that there are limits to this mm-hmm. kind of research. But nonetheless, as I was listening to you talk, I was very impressed by the research that you did in your findings and how that can move things along this continuum, especially as it relates to sex offenders, because for those of us who work in the field, we're always interested in what we can learn more about this very unique type of offender, again, in terms of not just prevention, but Mm -hmm. prediction. And I think that's a very, very excellent point. And one thing that I do want to kind of highlight is I'm not anti-neuroimaging with this population. I think that neuroimaging techniques, they all have their limitations, just like any form of research does. But I think especially as technology advances and our ability to investigate these things further, I think using a multimodal approach where we're using other forms of assessment, whether it's psychological, neuropsychology, risk assessment, even personality testing, using all of those things in combination with findings from neuroimaging studies, I think will give us a really rich and deeper understanding of what's going on with specific populations, whether it's sex offenders or other populations. So I think that neuroimaging definitely has its place and I think it's going to continue to be very helpful in this sort of prevention and prediction process. But I think at this point, because of the limitations that neuroimaging studies have, we really need to use a multimodal approach and bring in other forms of assessment. It's just like in forensic assessment, you can't base your findings or your recommendations to the court on one form of assessment, on an IQ test. You need to use several different types of assessments and tests and measures and take all of the data into account. And are they cohesive or are they contradictory? What is the data telling us as a whole? And using all of that information to then make recommendations and interpret our findings. Very good analysis. Thank you, Kate. You're welcome. Kate, one last question for you. What kind of future research would you say is needed in order to drive this field of inquiry forward? I think that future research should really, again, focus on taking that multimodal approach. But in doing so, I think what really needs to happen is bringing in more grant funding and making sure that we have the resources so that we can get sample sizes that are sufficient, that can adequately power the study, so we can really make some of these interpretations and work towards this prediction. Thank you, Kate for joining us on this installment of the Violence and Gender podcast. We are very happy you were able to join us. And thank you, Jennifer, for co-hosting this podcast with me. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime. To everyone at home listening in, be sure to check out the latest issue of Violence and Gender by visiting the journal online at www.liebertpub.com. While you're there, you can also learn more about how you can subscribe, peer review, publish, or use the journal in your classroom. We encourage you to submit your work to Violence and Gender and look forward to hearing from you. Also be sure to listen to the last installment of the podcast featuring Dr. Lacey Wallace, who discusses the journal's special two-part issue on gun violence. Thanks again, everyone. Thank you.